The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. This is Jason Poblet, and welcome to another podcast for the Global Liberty Alliance coming to you again today from Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia. I hope you're all doing well. As always, please keep your questions coming, your commentary, your notes, your your voicemail. We enjoy hearing uh, from you. Uh, We've received a lot of messages from all over the world, and uh, we're going to get to those and prepare a few shows uh, based on your input. So thank you all for listening. And if you haven't had your friends subscribe, please have them subscribe to the podcast. Today, we're going to go back to the same topic we had on our last show, Religious Freedom. And we have a very special guest, uh, Ms. Faith McDonald, who has been a longtime liberty warrior in this space. In fact, she and uh, an interesting group of people uh, were the point of the spear back in the early 90s and during the Cold War to carve out this space that today we talk about as religious freedom or religious liberty. And we're very eager to have her on the podcast because I know we're going to learn a lot from talking to her and so uh, so will you. You know, Faith has uh, been involved with uh, the church for uh, decades. And she's a writer and a speaker on the persecuted church. And we're going to share some of those writings with you on the podcast link. So you'll provide a few of those there for you. She has organized vigils for Sudan in front of the White House, the State Department, the Canadian Embassy and the Sudanese Embassy. Uh, she has been a key drafter of various pieces of legislation on religious persecution. Uh, has been very involved with the Episcopal Church for the United States and United States Congress. Uh, in June 2007, her book, Girl Soldier, A Story of Hope for Northern Uganda's Children, uh, was published by uh, Chosen Books. And we're going to provide a link for that as well. She is a member of the Church of the Apostles. Is that correct? You remember the Church of the Apostles, the yeah. Anglican? Yes. Okay. I am. Yes. And you serve in various international uh, missions, uh, which we're going to talk about today as well. And she's a board member for several human rights organizations. She's currently, uh, and, and if I, I butcher this, Faith, please correct me, but you're working with Catartismos uh, Global. You said uh, that beautifully. Okay, good. I got that <laughs> correct. <laughs> so I got that one correct. Catartismos Global. It's a phenomenal organization equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And that's, that's from Ephesians 4.12. If I am, if I, I'm not very good at, at that, but I think it's Ephesians 4.12. Yep. Uh, um, welcome to the program, Faith. How are you doing? Uh, thank you, Jason. I'm very doing very well and glad to be with you and with all your listeners. I'm very excited to talk to them. Tell us briefly about uh, Cartartismos Global. So those who don't know about what the organization does, uh, they have a little foundation about it. 
Sure. Uh, Catrichismos Global is a nonprofit ministry that was started by one of our Anglican bishops and his wife in the Anglican Church in North America, Bishop Julian Dobbs. And uh, he wanted a, a nonprofit that would work for the persecuted church because he has a real heart for the persecuted church. Um, in fact, you could ask Congressman Wolf about him because he knows Bishop Julian. Uh, so uh, the Dobbses started this, this ministry, which, uh, as you said, this Greek word means uh, the equipping of the saints. So mm. we aim to equip the saints who are being persecuted in the global community, but we also aim, uh, and, and this is the main focus, to equip saints who still have freedom to be able to be advocates and intercessors for their brothers and sisters who are suffering for their faith. So um, that's my, my job is to be an advocate, to encourage advocacy, to raise up the grassroots, uh, especially in churches, to, to be the kind of witness that the Bible says that they should be um, for all people who suffer for their, their faith, but especially for those who are of the household of, of the faith in Jesus, which um, Galatians 6.10 says, do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen. Amen to that. Well, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go back to that type uh, that that part of your life in a in a in a few minutes. But before we go mm -hmm. down that road, a lot of people hear that term religious freedom thrown about, religious liberty, and some of us are old enough to remember the Cold War, mm -hmm. uh, remember those battles during those days when we didn't have the internet, um, whether you were helping persecuted persons behind the Iron Curtain because of religious or political belief. Uh, a lot has changed. And you were at the, at the, uh, frankly, at the, you were part of that core group of, of activists who put this in motion. And we want to hear a little bit about that and how your journey to this religious freedom struggle started. I know you've been at this for a long time. And how did you come to this uh, uh, process, the struggle? And what was that period like during the Cold War in the early 90s? Because mm -hmm. that, that, that was a pivotal moment for the movement. It was. And, uh, you know, that was that was before I was doing this um, as as a job, long before I was doing this as a job. But that was when my awakening was um, I was actually a college student. And I was working um, at a, a summer camp, actually, uh, during during the summer, the Salvation Army summer camp. And on a break, we went to a big Christian festival out in the middle of New York State, Western New York State somewhere. And I got a hold of a magazine that changed my life. It was a, a magazine put out by the Jesus People USA, a kind of Jesus Freaks group in Chicago. And they had an article called The Valiant, and it was about Christians in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe who mm. were suffering for their faith, who were being imprisoned um, and, and tortured. And 
uh, put in mental hospitals. And I couldn't couldn't believe my eyes. I had no idea that that was happening. The, the church, this would have been uh, this. I hate to tell you how long ago this was, but <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably right there near with you, but go ahead. Yeah, it was it was in the late 70s. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, well, maybe not, but <laughs> yeah, I'm a little older than you are. Um, but uh, but it, you know, nobody in church ever talked about those things. Um, right. And the, the church groups that knew it was going on, like the World Council of Churches, um, which I didn't even know existed back then, but they were they were stifling that kind of truth because they were more concerned about nuclear disarmament than they were about their fellow Christians being mm. persecuted. So that was that was my start. And, uh, you know, this is in the days before the, the internet, before even email. Um, so uh, I just found all the, the resources that were at the back of this article, all the footnotes about the organizations that were spoken of, like Keston College in the UK that was helping Christians in the Soviet Union and um, Eastern European Bible Mission. Um, trying to think who else was around back then, but uh, I mean, I, I mean, those were th those were the days. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm, I'm, a, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a, sometimes I'm a serial interrupter. So. Oh, I don't mind. <laughs> I, like, I like that kind of back and forth. Because no, you said you, you said so much, and I wanted just to give uh -huh. con a, a little more context here. I mean, that was before the days that you had groups like phenomenal organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom, the Beckett mm -hmm. Fund, all these different organizations uh, that have come into existence. You didn't have any of those tools. So not only not only yeah. not, not only did you not have the internet. But you didn't have any of these groups uh, as part of that uh, uh, Liberty Warrior Army and also the legal structures that we have today, which we'll talk about in a minute. Mm -hmm. You didn't have that either. So how did you mm. find your, how did you find your way in college to get more engaged in that space? Because obviously you had a calling to it. Mm -hmm. you, you could have gone off and done so many other things, but you chose to focus on this. What, what drew you to this? Yeah, uh, well, reading the stories um, in, in that article, one in particular was about uh, a, a young Russian Christian woman, uh, Orthodox Christian named Irina Ratushinskaya, and how uh, she was put in prison because of her poetry. Um, and because I, I'm an English major, I was an English major in college and, and got my um, master's degree in English literature as well. And I love poetry. Um, so that especially spoke to me that this woman, because of her poems, was was in a Soviet prison, wow. uh, put in isolation a lot of the time. Um, and one of her poems, she talked about how uh, she's put she was put in a punishment cell that was about 30 degrees. Um, and she said that there were times when this amazing sense of warmth came over her. And she knew that that was when people were praying for her. And I thought, wow, if I don't do anything else, I need to pray for these people. And I need to encourage other people to pray for them as well and tell them what's happening. So, you know, I got information from the different organizations. One of them that is, is still around today, and actually I'm on the board of the U.S. branch, is Jubilee Campaign, which oh, right. started... Yeah 
in the UK, Danny Smith, when he heard about the Siberian Seven, um, seven Pentecostal Christians who 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 were um, going to go to prison for their faith, and they fled into the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and ended up living in the basement of the U.S. Embassy in Moscow for years. Um, you know, talk about lockdowns. They were locked down there. They couldn't leave because if they left U.S. soil, you know, in quotation marks, um, they would immediately be arrested and put in prison. Um, and it took the U.S. a long time to, to help them. So so that is, we need a movie. We need a movie on that one. I, I hope there's been one. I don't know. I'd have, I'll have to ask Danny. But um, Danny Smith got involved with this and started Jubilee Campaign, along with some amazing members of Parliament, including Lord Alton, one of the uh, right, right. British parliamentarians. And uh, that what they did was had members of Parliament adopt prisoners. That's right. Uh, and, you know, we, we tried to move that concept to this country, but much, much later. Um, I, I tried years, <laughs> years ago, but it, it took more um, push. So, but that's happened now with the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom having prisoner adoption. And is, like is, June, is the Jubilee campaign, I'm pretty sure it is the same one with Anne Bewalda, who's out here in Virginia? Yes, that's the one I'm on the board of, Jubilee Campaign USA. That's a and great organization. Yep. Incredible. Yep. Yeah. And Anne is wonderful. Um, and it's such a joy to work together with them. Um, so, you know, I started out uh, on my own and, and, and people who are listening, especially uh, college students and young people, um, you have to kind of take the initiative. Um, let God speak to your heart. Um, and then follow through. And all I did was like write to these organizations, got the information, and then started getting involved in whatever ways I could. And um, after, uh, after grad school, when I was um, living in Virginia, one of the, um, one of the, the places that I had heard about way back in college days was right in Old Town Alexandria. It was the home of um, Dr. Ernest Gordon, who had been the dean of Princeton Seminary, but um, was originally from Scotland and was a soldier in World War II and one of the um, prisoners of the 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 bridge over the river Kwai incident. Oh, okay. Amazing, right. amazing man. And there is a movie about that. Yes, there's a, there's a very good movie with that one. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> and uh, so I got to know Dr. Gordon when he was still at Princeton. He was having um, conferences every year uh, on Christian persecution. And it was like, if you if you wanted to do something to be an advocate, his conference uh, but with his group called Creed, which stood for the Christian Rescue Effort for the Emancipation of Dissidents. Wow, awesome name. Awesome <laughs> and, name. Yeah, so I would trek over to uh, Princeton and go to these conferences, and we heard about the prisoners in the Soviet Union. That's how I first heard about somebody who became my dear friend, Alexander. Alexander Ogorodnikov, who was a, a, a Russian um, uh, atheist, communist student, 
at the university film student and the 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 film department at the university in Moscow made the great mistake of showing the, the students uh, a film by a Marxist director Pasolini but it was the gospel of Matthew and God used it to speak to Alexander and um and changed his life he he became a follower of Jesus he um gave up communism he um started a group uh of of kind of young intellectuals in the in Russia to um talk about religion and things like that talk about faith in god and started underground literature and of course then went to prison so. you know if I, if I were to you know we try not to be political on this show but i'm going to because you just opened the door Go ahead. um you know too bad we're not doing all of this in colleges and universities today instead of all this woke stuff that we're always uh i mean this is um you know we we we, we wonder you know that's uh, uh where the colleges and universities are going and maybe these are some good lessons for them to pull to pull from that uh, rather than spend so much time on the census wokeness mm -hmm. uh, do some good in the world and you know attract our youth to do some noble noble things and help others amen amen jason yeah and it it shows you the difference between wokeness and being awakened <laughs> that's right and that's what what we want is and and you know the college i'll bet you the colleges and universities in the u.s and and western europe in places where people have enjoyed freedom are the only ones doing wokeness i'll bet you the 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 colleges in in poland and romania and hungary and places like that are not doing wokeness i bet yeah, yeah a lot of um a lot of the, our our friends uh, global liberty alliance friends people that we've worked with even before we started the organization mm -hmm. uh behind that used to they're from countries that were behind the Iron Curtain mm -hmm. is where we've seen and still see a lot of uh, hope for, for freedom, for liberty, for religious freedom. In fact, more so than the people who lived in freedom on, yeah. on, on the other side of the Iron Curtain uh, that right now are in these struggles. And I believe it's because they strayed from their core, you know, defense of fundamental rights, belief, freedom of religion. Uh, uh, you, we have to go behind the Iron Curtain people who suffered under the Soviet system yeah. uh, to, to find those liberty warriors, but that's fine. I think they are the hope for the future and, that, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, and they're praying for us, believe me. <laughs> oh yes, they are. I hear, a lot, I hear a lot from them. And every time something happens here in America that catches the headlines, they're the first people who are calling or emailing are folks like them who, who, who look at America. And I believe America still is the last great hope for humanity and the world. And uh, not, you know, despite the, uh, the negative press uh, we can't get uh, distracted. Uh, freedom and liberty always win. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's the way it's going to keep being. Now, tell us a little bit about the, you know, today we have a lot of religious freedom laws, but the story about how the International Religious Freedom Act came about and uh, that, that whole chapter in this, in this project, a project that's still being uh, put together. Um, how did that come about? Who, who were those, some of the players in addition to yourself, but there were a lot of people back in 1996 where this movement kind of started to gel a bit in Washington. And, you know, Frank Wolf has this great expression that you've used before. Politics are downstream from culture. Yeah. So that's what happened in the mid, mid to late 1990s. So the Berlin Wall came down and then you had this movement 
in the mid 90s then for religious freedom how, how did that all happen how did these laws come into play well when the when the berlin wall came down and when uh you know the soviet union seemed to come to an end a, a lot of people were like phew that's the end of that there's not going to be persecution anymore <laughs> we had a rude awakening red alert folks it's, it, it probably and got worse <laughs> we started to hear things that had been suppressed in other countries too i mean it was what what was going on in sudan against the christians in sudan had been going on for decades but we really didn't know about it um and and we started to hear the truth about what was happening in places like that and there were a number of us who were involved on um different religious freedom issues or or uh human rights issues um uh, of course nina shea who was then uh still over at um freedom house well actually she was at the puebla institute when all this started and then freedom house and now at the hudson institute um and a number of us uh but it one of the the key uh people um, well, if I go back even beyond that key person, this is this is how God works. Mm. <laughs> God had a man who had been persecuted for his faith brutally in his home country of Ethiopia come to the United States and get to know a Jewish man in Washington, D.C. named Michael Horowitz. So when Gatana Gatana and Michael Horowitz became friends, um, Michael heard what was happening in Ethiopia to Christians and was was totally puzzled that he hadn't heard anything from Christians in America talking right. about this. So um so let's wait let, let's pause right there. Sure. So so I've heard this story before, but mm -hmm. I want to I want our listeners to kind of let this sink in some more. Mm -hmm. A Jewish person was asking questions about hey, what's going on with the Christian churches in Ethiopia? Mm-hmm. And mm -hmm. he came, he, he's the one who came to our defense is what you're saying. Let's, what are we doing and how can I help? Exactly. Just like Mr. Wolf mentioned on your podcast, he learned so much from the Jewish activists. Um, it was, it really, you know, I think that goes back to, to, to biblical principles that God, God chose Israel to, to save the world through Jesus, but also through what the Jewish people are doing. And Michael, Michael was saying things and and willing to speak up and be bold and as he says get disinvited from cocktail parties that he <laughs> get invited to because he said this is awful nobody's doing anything about this he said I I can't sit out another holocaust that's oh that those were his words um and he also said you know it was the christians who 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 helped the, the Jews during World War II. It was people like Corey Ten Boom who hid Jews in her house. It was Raoul Wallenberg right. um, later disappeared into the gulag, you know? Um, and so, so Michael started being an annoyance basically to Christian leaders like Chuck Colson and Elizabeth Elliot. Um, I was trying to think who else was involved in those days. Um, but, uh, 
uh, and then church, he, he wrote, he wrote letters. He, he just like looked up in a, in the yellow pages or something, all the mission agencies in all the major Christian churches, you know, not even not knowing what he was doing. Cause he didn't really have that much connection with Christian churches at that time. He, he, he became well-known later, but he wrote to them and said, you know, there's terrible persecution going on. What are you doing about it? And he would get these polite letters back saying, thank you so much for your concern. Um, we have to be very careful about what we say because we have missionaries in these countries and nobody was willing to take a stand. So Michael uh, started making meetings happen in Washington um, and got us together and uh, um what it led to first was to there being an international day of prayer for the persecuted church. And Mr. Wolf mentioned that as well. Um, that was, that was such a interesting and fascinating concept because it was not just like, you know, the national day of prayer here where Americans pray for America. Um, it was international so you had people in all different countries praying for people in all different countries and you had people who were being persecuted praying for other people who were being persecuted and i think that that adds a lot of fuel to the prayer when you have that kind of selflessness that you know christians we we heard uh reports that Christians in China were praying for Christians in Pakistan, Christians in Sudan were praying for Christians in Egypt, you know, and it just, it was amazing. And I know Mr. Wolf said it isn't that big a deal anymore, unfortunately, um, but I hear from a lot of churches that still do it. In fact, I'm surprised. They they kind of, they, they don't do it organizationally. They've just taken it on themselves individually as a a church to do it. In fact, last September, I spoke for the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church at a church in Costa Mesa, California. Um, you know, mask and all. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You, you know, it's, it's it. You said a few things that I want to go back and kind of um, talk a little bit, uh, some more about, especially the work that uh, started back when, again, pre-internet pre-International Religious Freedom Act days. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing I want to stress to our listeners, I've said this before in prior podcasts, but it's worth repeating. Lawmaking is hard. It's designed to be that way in the American system. And I think it's a wonderful thing. It should be hard. Mm -hmm. And all that work that faith is talking about, the networking, the prayers, the, the different folks, no matter what the denomination happens to be, taking interest in their fellow brother and sister and coming to the defense of someone, whether you're Jew, Muslim, Christian, Buddhist, doesn't matter. You had these, these core people all over the world before the internet that somehow found their way uh, to put together a phenomenal coalition that thanks to them during the Cold War, uh, were able to lead us to this uh, uh, lawmaking moment. And I think it's a historic moment where we were able to, in America, pass the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998, mm -hmm. a process that started back, I think, in 96 or 97 right. uh, with, with Frank Wolf and a few other people that you'll talk about in a moment. Um, the fact that that happened, though, uh, is, is significant because, again, lawmaking is hard. Everybody thinks coming to Washington, people go off and make speeches. If you want to, if you want to move product in Washington, in other words, if you want to either 
pass a law or engage in the regulatory process. Uh, it's difficult. It's very, very difficult. It's not easy to do. And especially if you want to pass a law, uh, sometimes it takes decades. I mean, the genocide law, the Genocide Act that was eventually enacted into law where we adopted the International Convention took almost 30 plus years to enact. It, it took a long time. And it was, on, uh, frankly, uh, one or two people who just stood there day in and day out. In fact, in the genocide law, it was one senator who would go on the floor every single day from the moment he came to the Senate. He felt that passionate mm. and that focused on it. There was political will. There was moral courage. He, was, he had headwinds, but he kept mm. focused on it. So fast forward to 1996 timeframe. Mm -hmm. What do you think was the one thing, in addition to everything else you've just said, mm -hmm. that made this International Religious Freedom Act a possibility? Because back then, I think Bill Clinton was president. He's the one who signed this thing. He did. Uh, and, yeah. and you had um, this coalition in Congress of Republicans. Um, what do you think made that happen? You had people like Wolf. You had Lieberman, mm -hmm. Don Nichols. Uh, people that a lot of the listeners probably have no idea who they are, but they should know who these people are. Yes, Chris Smith. Chris Smith, who's still in Congress, by the way. Uh, and you had champions like you. Of course, you mentioned Nina, uh, who's still at it, and she's a phenomenal warrior as well. But what do you think led to that eventual passage? And where are we today on the implementation of that important law? Mm. Well, yeah, you're right. There were a lot of headwinds on this, too. It, it really, I think it was a miracle that it happened. It took a lot of hard work, but even with all our hard work, if it weren't for God basically saying that this is the time for this to happen um, and, and, and changing the hearts of people, it wouldn't have happened. So um, Mr. Wolf talked about his, you know, his, his quote about the um, culture being uh, upstream from, from, Congress, but he sometimes adds another part to that and, and used to say that culture was downstream from the church. The church should have an influence on culture that then right. culture can have the influence on the Congress. So this day of prayer helped, but as we, we started working towards the, the, the legislation itself, um, it was it was quite a process. Um, and the thing was, you had surprising opponents. I think, you know, when we were together at that, the, 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 um, when I spoke at St. Mary's Basilica, that was one of the things I talked about that we had, we had the National Council of Churches opposing the legislation. Um, bringing in their own, you know, experts to speak to Congress, like a dog and pony show, um, church leaders, but church leaders from other countries who were compromised with, with the state there and um, saying, you know, oh, um, there's no persecution. Um, so, you know, we don't need a law like this. This will just cause trouble. And, you know, you're thinking, well, if there's no persecution, then why should this cause trouble? But, but that was their way of talking about it. Um, and, you know, we had a very unexpected ally in a very, very left-wing magazine, Mother Jones. <laughs> mm. Wow. Who, who, who exposed the fact that the National Council of Churches was in cahoots with um, the, um, oh, what's it called? The, the business community, basically. Um, the, the, uh, uh, 
I can't even think of the name of it right now. They were working together with the business community, the, the uh, corp, I can't, I'm, I've totally lost the name. That's of okay. That's all right. Group. But the people, you know, the people who are more concerned about business than right. they are about human rights. And uh, it was something that, you know, I think the article was called Strange Bedfellows because it was saying, hey, why are why is the National Council of Churches um, working together with with the uh, with the um, business people instead of trying to help? their persecuted fellow believers so uh that that was you know that 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 is the topic we could do a whole show on and and you know what consider (laughs) the invitations there we're going to do another (laughs) podcast just to talk about okay uh, that that dynamic in washington where you have these interesting left-right coalitions take place in fact some of the more interesting pieces of legislation that i've ever worked on when i worked Mm -hmm. on the hill um at least those that i felt had a huge impact on Mm-hmm. on policy in any given area were put together by an interesting collection of characters on the left and the right yes uh, who would move product to get be- beyond where these people were down on k street uh, yes. t- today they call it the swamp but it's always yes. it's always always had different names but uh so the opposition to you all yeah. back then was coming chamber from of commerce that's the, what i couldn't think oh of. the chain oh the chamber well you know the chamber what can <laughs> Uh, they they are really deep state as they say today uh and that's the word they use today but they are they they do kind of wrap themselves in this mantle of free enterprise but Mm. frankly at times it's really disappointing because defense of fundamental rights such as religious freedom without it you really can't have great markets because if you're trampling the religious rights of somebody anywhere in the world you're probably doing things that are also affecting markets and affecting free enterprise, you, you got to have both, yeah. and some, especially the rule of law. And yeah. uh, I find their interest. And we're going to talk a little bit later about China. Uh-huh. And, I was going to say, yeah, well, we're, 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 <laughs> China, we can definitely talk about we're, that. We're going to talk about China and Nigeria in a few minutes, uh, but <laughs> let's get back to the law. So what? So, so this, you had so, this great coalition come together. So we did, and in fact, some. Uh, I think it was Michael Horowitz who said that the the journalists who came to to see the the hearings going on like this were getting whiplash because they had to keep turning their heads from the right to the left. <laughs> <laughs> Because it was a right-left coalition. Um, and, uh, you know, there, of course, there had to be compromises made. Uh, the, the original legislation had a much stronger position on Sudan. And, you know, again, it's those those Chamber of Commerce interests. And th- back then, it wasn't as much oil, unbelievably, as it was gum Arabic That's that was right. used yeah. in making candy and, you know, all these things. So uh, we had we we had to change a little bit of that, um, even though uh, we had one amazing member of Congress who was really pushing um, for for that in uh, that was um, Spencer Bacchus from Birmingham, Alabama. Wow. I haven't heard that name guy. in a while. Yeah. 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 Good man. Um, but we also then uh, again, say thanks to Michael. Uh, and and also um, we we had a lot of help from, like we said 
uh, with Mr. Wolf, the, the Jewish uh, people who had been dissidents, um, the, the ones who, who started the uh, free Soviet Jewry um, campaigns in the 60s and things like that, teaching us what to do. You know, when we started the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, we had lawn signs, just like the free Soviet Jewry signs wow. that people stuck in front of their houses or, you know, in front of their churches. So that was a big help. But also, uh, Abe Rosenthal, the former editor of the New York Times, um, started writing articles about Christians being persecuted. Wow. Um, he said, yeah, he said that this was another one of those cases, like the story of Kitty Genovese in New York, who mm. was stabbed to death just a few, you know, feet from her own apartment screaming and people were by their windows but nobody helped and he said that's the case of the persecuted christians around the world today um who's going to help them and he said he would do as much as he could by writing these articles so he he gave us a lot of coverage and i know you know the uh the the, the members of congress who were um opposed to the legislation they were new york times readers so when they <laughs> When they started reading those articles, it was like, uh oh. <laughs> I, I, I think it, look, it's a phenomenal law. We're not going to have time to go through all of it. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, I'm going to just touch on a few sections. There's, a seven, there's seven titles in this thing. Um, but thanks to this law, you have tools now or more tools. And as, and as an advocate, folks like yeah. you in that space who dedicated your lives to religious freedom, it must have come as a great, like a, a breath of fresh air, if you will, because you now have an ambassador at large for international religious freedom at the State Department. Uh, because of this law, you also have this bipartisan commission on international religious freedom that's mm -hmm. supposed to provide independent, and they do policy advice and recommendations on this core national security issue, which that's religious freedom is a core mm -hmm. national security issue. And you also have, um, this is more beltway chatter. I'm not gonna get too much into this, but you have a special advisor on international religious freedom within the Security Council. And, and, th and that is important because big decisions on foreign policy happen within the Security Council. And for those folks who don't know what that is, it's a very important office within the, within the White House that advises the president on, on important issues so that policy can be formulated and they can go tasking uh, the bureaucracy uh, on implementing this sort of thing. And there's a lot of other things this law does uh, it was, of course, updated a few years ago, well, a few years after enactment with the Frank Wolf uh, uh, law, which added uh, and, and kind of perfected parts of this and how uh, countries were listed and not listed. Um, and, and I think it's a phenomenal tool that we need to keep, keep building upon it. Now, question for you. Do you think the law has been implemented as Congress intended? Not completely. Um, as you say, Jason, it's it's an incredibly important tool, and it's been very helpful. Um, before that law, there wasn't that much that we could do, um, and and now we have all of these these wonderful steps, but they have not always been implemented in the way that I believe that they should. Um, under President Donald Trump. I saw more implementation and more, um, you know, more success at at 
using the, the law the way it was supposed to be, enshrining religious freedom into into our whole system, into the DNA of, mm. of the US government. Um, but that hadn't always been the case and, and not even in the Trump administration was it always the case. Um, but, but it's certainly a lot better than it was before. Um, and with the, with the Frank Wolf Religious Freedom Act, more was done to improve upon it. So um, yes, uh, but you know we've got things like there are always going to be countries that we believe the the, the advocates believe should be considered uh, countries of particular concern that because of other interests they might not be you know that's that's part of the 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 law too that uh, countries should be um, that the State Department comes out with its report on religious freedom in different countries and. <laughs> Unfortunately, sometimes it's the State Department that's the big problem. So that's <laughs> where the implementation uh, is is not up to up to crack. You know. Well, it's, you know that's that, and that, by the way, is the second follow up podcast we're going to have. <laughs> we're, Boy, we're, am I going to be in trouble? <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about how agencies are supposed to implement yeah. laws, and it's interesting exercise. Not just State Department. I think a lot of it has to do with the size of our government. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, most of the time, it's really a question of political will and moral courage. These are tough issues. You know, this space, there's a lot of positive and good things happening, but frankly, a lot of horrible things happening. There, there's genocide, and we're going to now shift the topic a little bit and talk okay. about some of the some two two hotbed countries, uh, China and Nigeria. But there's a lot of uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of bad things happening in the world right now to Christians and, and other religious minorities and. Yeah. Oh, there, there is genocide taking place, and that's not a word that people like to use. Um, there, there's uh, the persecuted church. It's a tough word to use, but it's happening. And, and, and we have to be, you know, one of the first steps in trying to come up with a solution to a problem is to acknowledge that there's a problem and you have to bear witness to this. And sometimes you have to talk about some very disagreeable topics. And I believe you have to, um, as, Frank, as Frank Wolf said in the podcast, um, you're going to have to suffer. There's going to be pain. If you really want to understand, if you haven't been through that process, you have to get out, travel, and see what people are suffering and what they're living or speak to victims of religious persecution. Mm -hmm. America, by the way, is the, you know, I, I always hear all this debate about immigration. All I can do is laugh. I'm, I'm the product of immigrants. My family came to this country during the Cold War. I was born here, mm -hmm. uh, but they left a communist country. And they suffered this sort of religious persecution. In fact, my mother-in-law, her best friend, was shot in the head in communist Cuba when the Catholics were out protesting uh, the communists. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, they just started shooting at random. And this man died in her arms. A very good friend of hers, the Catholic youth group uh, that were targeted by the regime. And, and they were in their teens. And this man's life was taken from a young man's life was taken from him. And all they were doing was out there praying and, and demanding the respect of their religious rights. And so uh, unless you've lived it, I mm -hmm. guess it's difficult to understand uh, that America's leadership is so important in this space. And the people look to us. They still look to us. And that all that nonsense you hear about immigration, my friends, it's nonsense. It's politics. This is where people want to come, especially pe members of the persecuted church, because they know that America respects fundamental rights. On 
on let's talk about China a minute. On the 24th of May, at least amongst us Catholics, but th I think this is a worldwide call for all Christians and anybody else who wants to join. There's a there's the feast of Our Lady of China to help um, Christians and uh, engage in an annual worldwide day of prayer for the persecuted church in China. Wow. And this this comes from, you know, it was announced by uh, Charles uh, Bowl, who's a Catholic Burmese Catholic prelate who has uh, been involved uh, uh, at the at the he was frankly this was a, a new cardinal created by Pope Francis um, mm. in in Yangon um, and he's always been a vocal advocate of religious freedom and Cardinal Bow um, has taken this moment to remind folks about the persecuted church. For the people who are listening to this who do not know much about the persecuted church in China, what does it mean when you are, if you're a Christian, a believer in China, it's not a very safe place, right? No, it's not. Uh, there, the Christians in China have been put into labor camps. Um, you know, one of the things that that we have to remember uh, in America when we get products made in China that they were probably made by prisoners, and and a lot of them being pastors and church members who, uh, 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 and and even bishops. You know, um, I, in fact, I'm going to interrupt you because mm -hmm. I believe I believe. I, it's, I think it's critical, by the way, and I've done this. I've, I've actually written letters to Catholic bishops here in Washington and yes. over at the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in the in, in the, the gift shop they have in the basement. We shouldn't have anything in the church made in China. Absolutely right. nothing. The majority That's of that is made with slave labor. And I think we have to redouble our efforts to find places like in America, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, we can we can manufacture our religious books and our rosaries right here. Don't buy anything made in China. Absolutely mm -hmm. nothing, because nine times out of ten, it's the being done with slave labor. Go ahead. That's right, and they can't even have those Bibles and rosaries themselves. That's right, so they that can't. That makes it even more, you know, ironic and and evil. Um, I, I met uh Peter Shu, who was a a pastor of one of the huge house churches in China, and he told about making the Christmas lights that we put on our Christmas trees. He made those in the labor camp. Um, so yeah, it, it's a, it's a real, real thing. Um, in China, there, there has been a, a two tiered kind of system with the uh, official churches, the registered churches, both Catholic and Protestant that are called the three self patriotic churches. Um, and then the underground church, which does not register and which meets in secret um, when it can. Um, and uh, it is, is full of underground priests and bishops and, and, and parishioners. Um, one of the things that gives me hope for China is that almost 400 million Chinese people have renounced the Communist Party now officially. They have signed a, a declaration. Right. That the Falun Gong, God bless them, has 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 created um, after they um, uh, published a thing called the Nine Commentaries on the Chinese Communist Party. So uh, I think that the Chinese government is terrified of people who uh, have 
will only bow to a greater authority being God. Um, so, you know, the, but these house churches, the unregistered churches, people have been put in prison and labor camps. Um, people are tortured. Um, and, and in, in different eras of, of Chinese communist party now, things have changed at different times. You know, a few years ago, uh, we were seeing a little bit of op more openness on a, on a country level. And it was just local pockets of government that were, were being the most repressive. And, you know, it depended what, what province people lived in, whether there was that much persecution as there was in another place. But now we're, we're back to Chairman Mao times now. Um, the, the repression and persecution have increased. Um, the, the infiltration of the churches by communism, um, not that the people want it, but it's being imposed on them. The, they've changed the Bible itself. Uh, I don't, do you know about that, Jason? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but tell, <laughs> tell our listeners about this, because, again, what, a few things you could take away from Faith's comment, Faith's oh. comments about China. One is, don't forget, there's a two-tiered system in China, the Chinese Communist Party as they do in Cuba, for example, there are these special offices, generally called offices of religious affairs, mm. and they control the quote-unquote Christian church. But that's not the Christian church. That's the state-controlled church that's used to show the world, hey, yeah, we're tolerant, we're tolerant. Why not? Look, we have Christians here. If you're, not, if you're part of the other church, the underground church, the persecuted church, the, the legitimate churches, the independent churches, uh, you're in a hot bit of trouble. But tell people about the yeah. Bible issue. This is This is something that I think our listeners probably don't know, and I think they should they should listen uh, to an expert uh, tell them what it's about. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, the Chinese Communist Party is is um, determined to have communism uh, infiltrate every part of people's lives, um, and and to weaken the church by making it. Uh, more communist uh, friendly, basically. Um, so what they have done is they've taken the Bible and put uh, Chairman Mao's kind of ideology, <laughs> little red book into it. Um, and one particular example that is just gobsmacking is the story of Jesus uh, and the woman who was caught in adultery, where <laughs> the, it, it if you know that Bible story, it's uh, the, the, the people come up to Jesus and, and say, this woman was caught in adultery. What do you think we should do to her? According to the law of God and Moses, she should be stoned. And Jesus is kind of quiet and he's writing some things in the sand. It doesn't say in the gospel what he's actually writing. <laughs> you can think about that yourselves because then he turns to them and says, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. And, you know, to their credit, they have enough shame to realize that they're not without sin. So they turn away and Jesus forgives the woman and her life is transformed. And it's a wonderful story of mercy and grace and forgiveness and the power of God. Well, well the communists have made it so that um, when, when they, these people say, uh, what should we do with this woman? Uh, Jesus says, go, go away. I will take care of her myself. And, you know, you're thinking, oh, the woman is thinking to herself, oh, he saved me. And instead, Jesus starts stoning the woman. Oh, and boy. 
Yeah. So Jesus stones the woman and says, nobody's, nobody's perfect except me. So I, I get to do it. And basically it's, you know, the Chinese communist way of saying, we are the ones who decide who lives and dies. <laughs> we, the communists are the ones who have the right to, because we are perfect. And I, I just couldn't believe it when I heard heard that that's pure that's that's pure evil right there it is it is evil well we're gonna we're gonna triumph over them and we're gonna keep and and the church is strong and there's great leaders out there uh throughout throughout the world including folks like bob fu uh from china aid and and so many others who are on the front lines of this battle and and we're going to provide folks some links so they can learn more about the persecuted church uh and it's what's happening in china uh faith um Let's. Uh, we're talking, by the way, with Faith McDonald uh, uh, with Catartismos Global. Did I say it right? Catartismos Global. Yep. Okay, uh, very good. Uh, a religious liberty warrior, a friend, and 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 colleague in in the religious freedom struggle. Let's talk a little bit about because we're going a little over, but I think it's all right. Um, we we need to kind of get some of this out there for folks, and we're going to have have you back for at least two more shows. Um, <laughs> what's happening in? Uh, to our fellow Christians in Nigeria. Uh, is it, that reaches the stage of genocide. It really does. Um, Nigeria is the largest country in Africa. Um, it was probably more than 50% Christian, um, although you don't hear that, and that is not a, what the, the, the media likes to tell you. Um, but right now, uh, especially in the north and central parts of Nigeria, Boko Haram, um, Islamist group that has now combined with ISIS, um, and uh, the Fulani, who are were uh, a, a tribal group that have become militarized um, and Islamized um, are killing Christians, wiping out Christian villages, taking uh, Christian girls as as um, as slaves, really um, kidnapping them and taking them as slaves. We we actually uh, have a campaign right now to try to. Um, bring awareness to the enslavement of, of Nigerian uh, Africans. Um, trying, we, we actually sent an open letter to Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and challenged her to uh, prove that she cares about Black Lives Mattering in Nigeria. So we'll see what happens with that. Has she, has she, has she responded? We have not heard a response yet. No, we even have um, there, there's a there's a website called free Nigerian slaves dot org. And uh, you can see the picture there of the billboard that's across from her office in 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 her district um, with the the picture of Leah Sheribu, the young woman who was taken by Boko Haram and is still with them because she refused to recant of her faith and to convert to Islam. Um, but but uh, I mean, it's it's, it's um, the story of Nigeria. Now, again, we could do another show on this one also. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's quite, it's uh, it's a genocide, I believe. But mm-hmm. and that's something that we're, uh, I think the U.S. government should be exploring a little more closely. I wish that the Trump administration had done more in that space, and I hope the Biden administration will uh, do a little more and kind of probe closely what's happening there. Just earlier this year, um, the Catholic Church. Uh, a group of 
prelates uh, and religious leaders led a march. I think it was in early March because it's frankly unending killings of Catholic priests and religious. Uh, the kidnappings continue. Yes. Uh, there have been priests and sisters and parishioners who've been brutally murdered in churches. Uh, priests are being taken hostage. Uh, ransoms come in, very high ransoms of 80, 100 or more thousand dollars, which you know in Nigeria, that's a, a lot of money. Yes. Um, and it's to the point where people are, well, the good news, I guess that there's a silver lining here is that they're bearing witness. A lot of Catholics and non-Catholics are protesting publicly, hitting the streets. Uh, you have folks really upset about the killings um, and the confiscation of lands uh, mm. just, just because you're a Christian. So it's not limited. The attacks are not limited to ordained clergy. They're going after anyone who's a Christian, Catholic. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what denomination. Uh, they're going after uh, uh, Christians in that country. What do you think, under the different tools that we have today in the United States, you know how resistant, you know, the, our, we, we're going through a phase in foreign policy where there's been less engagement, I guess you could say, around the world. Uh, but there is engagement happening mm. and there needs to be a lot more attention focused on this issue. And there's this big debate in Nigeria, of course, about why are the killings happening? Some people will tell you, oh, it's all economics. Mm. Uh, it has to do climate with climate change. Some, yeah. Some people even say it's climate change. I, I, I'm a little amused. I don't understand the logic behind it. Uh, but as a, a lawyer, I know we, we kind of want to probe and look at the the case by case analysis and it's clear to us at least some of the data that we've seen that's been collected by many groups that this is this has a religious component to it this is not just about economics it's not just about property fights there's a lot more to this what can what what can you know what can the united states do we are the world's leading human rights defenders as far as uh, religious freedom go what can we? What can the U.S. government do? What should the Biden administration be doing? What should Congress be doing? I don't hear. I don't hear Congress talking, with very few exceptions. Yeah, our, I don't, our dear friend Congressman Chris Smith has been one of the only ones, and in fact, he he was having hearings about Boko Haram and the killing of Christians. Uh, when I was a part of a task force trying to get um, Hillary Clinton, then Secretary of State, to designate Boko Haram as a foreign terrorist organization. And it took three years for us to pressure them. And it finally happened the day that Chris was having a hearing and had um, as a witness, a man who had been shot when he, he refused to, to convert. And Boko Haram had shot him um, in the mouth uh, the, the bullet went through the back of his head. Um, he showed us the, the pictures, the x-rays of it, and he was left for dead. Um, and thanks be to God, he survived. Um, but that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that was going on. And the most important thing I think that the U.S. could do right now is put pressure on President Buhari and say, you need to get this stopped. You know, Buhari himself is a Fulani. So, 
you know, it, there could be that there's collaboration or it could just be that he's lax because those are his people. But either way, he needs to be pressured. Now, that's one thing that President Trump did do because uh, uh, Buhari later, like even a year later, reported that he was so shocked that the first time he came to the United States to see President Trump, President Trump said to him, why are you killing Christians in your country? Yeah, I, rem I, I remember yeah. that. Well, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's interesting. You just reminded me of um, of the of some of a, of a homily that was uh, Christmas Day homily of last year, um, where Bishop uh, Kuka, uh, the current mm -hmm. bishop of the Diocese of Sokoto, mm -hmm. uh, had pretty graphic. I mean, it, it, he was blunt I mean, as far as homilies go. You know, Cat Catholics were not used to a lot of this plain spokenness, bluntness. And <laughs> you know, our homilies are a little, for the most part, although we have a few priests that I, uh, at least in my parish that are, I, I enjoy their homilies. I enjoy all homilies, but, but when they get on these subjects, it's very, it's a very delicate matter. And he actually said uh, from the pulpit that the endless bloodletting, the collapsing economy, the domestic and community violence, the kidnappings and armed robberies affecting Nigeria were becoming beyond intolerable. And he actually went as far as saying about the president of Nigeria, that he was, you know, that you're engaging in nepotism mm -hmm. and, and the country has become a house of horrors. Mm -hmm. And I'm quoting again, mm -hmm. of fears of people stalking our homes, our highways, our cities, our hamlets and our entire communities. And what, what, he, what he was getting at, and to put some data out there, uh, the going back at least to 2009, Faith, as you know, about 30,000 plus people, potentially more have been killed and at least 2 million people have been displaced from their homes. Yes. Uh, according to uh, humanitarian aid relief in London, uh, some of the data includes, and this is, I think these are conservative numbers, over a thousand Christians have been killed or slaughtered. And this is in addition to an estimated 6,000 plus Christian deaths since 2015. So just in 2019 alone, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a thousand plus Christians were killed. That's mm -hmm. in addition to the 6,000 plus that have been slaughtered or killed since 2015. 15 that's a lot of people it is and, and and you know those are conservative estimates based on yeah. some of the data collection that's happened out there so uh, do you think the biden administration is taking this seriously or, or you think groups like yours and others we're gonna have to keep talking about this until they do more oh man no we're gonna have to keep talking about it because they are they are pushing the same narrative that this is this is a climate change issue that this is a clash a clash between the farmers and the herdsmen and i don't know if your audience is familiar with this but what that always reminds me of is the musical oklahoma and there's a song in it that says why can't the farmers and the cowmen be friends mm. and they're acting like it's something like this when this is a, an extermination of Christians by these Fulani who have been militarized and told that uh, Nigeria belongs to the caliphate. They, they back in the 19th century, um, uh, Osman Don Fodio was the caliph 
and said that Nigeria would be a caliphate in Africa. And these guys are following through on that. It has nothing to do with climate change. Um, you know, you have the, the Maasai in Kenya who are herdsmen, but they don't go around slaughtering Christians. That's right. um, yeah. it, there's no excuse for it. Um, it. Congressman Smith at one hearing when when uh, the, the Assistant Secretary of State under Obama, Johnny Carson, was saying that, oh, Boko Haram are just disenfranchised youth who we should be building rec centers so they can play basketball for um, <laughs> Congressman mm. said, we, we should apologize to every poor person in the world for that comment because <laughs> just because you're poor does not make you a murderer. <laughs> wow. Well, Faith, um, Faith McDonald with Qatartismo's Global Religious Freedom Advocate, it's been fantastic talking with you. We've kind of exhausted the time. Uh, uh, but before we let you go, mm -hmm. if you have any pieces of advice for, let's say, somebody who wants to become more involved with this, uh, what do you think the movement here in the States need right now? We, we, you've talked a lot about this, and you say that at times you need the new generation to step up. Has the new generation stepped up? And if they haven't, what do you think anyone who's listening to this could do to become more involved uh, with this uh, phenomenal effort, global effort. Mm. Yes, we do. We need a new generation. We need we need young people to to mentor on this and to to see uh, as as Mr. Wolf said how your heart will be broken, but it it's a, a good breaking. It's the kind of breaking that that people need in their lives um, to to make them who who God created them to be. Um, people right now, uh, a couple of the things that I mentioned. There's the FreeNigerianSlaves.org. We also were, were working to try to stop the Chinese from being able to have the, um, the Olympics. So uh, we're not saying boycott the Olympics at this point. We're saying to the U.S. Olympics Committee, move the Olympics from China to any other place in the world um, because of the genocide. So um, there's a, a website called genocidegames.org that people can look at. And, and what we just talked about, if people will, will look into what's happening in Nigeria and combat that fake narrative that is uh, responsible for excusing the death of so many people um, and stop uh, uh, confront their members of Congress, confront the, the State Department and the foreign policy elites who are saying that this is climate change and say, no, this is, this is persecution of my fellow brothers and sisters and it needs to stop. So um, I, I think those are the things I would and, and 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 Faith, I think also it's important that even if you're not, and this is what I tell my a-religious, like, uh, mm -hmm. or my atheist friends or my friends who just maybe are not involved with organized religion, I guess, whatever they, uh, you know, as people find their way to the faith in many different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, but even if you are not a, a, a devout or follower, it doesn't matter. Uh, think right. about the persecution of your fellow man and woman and your, and, your, and your friends. And these people are being targeted because they happen to think differently mm -hmm. many, many times from the ruling uh, regimes in places like communist China, or communist Cuba, we see political, we see religious persecution. And even in Nic places like Nicaragua, we, we, it happens right here in the hemisphere. Heck, it happens right here in America. Yes. Um, um, of course, it's different types of persecution. But even if you're not 
an especially religious person, or you, or you really have no, religion has no place in your life right now, just think about persecution of anyone, of the individual, when you, when you uh, uh, think about defending the fundamental rights of someone. It doesn't matter why they're being persecuted when you're, it just, you should take an interest in it because that's an individual just like you who has been targeted because they happen to be people of faith. And you can help, you can get engaged, you can write letters. Uh, you, everybody in this country has a representative in the House. Everybody in this country has two senators in the Senate, and you can get engaged in a variety of ways. And I think it's uh, something that can be very worthwhile for a young person who's exploring uh, getting more involved in this space to uh, uh, do it. Uh, you don't have to be a lawyer to do this. You, uh, you, you can engage in this in many, many different ways, even where you work. Yeah. Yeah, this is a justice issue, and all people who care about justice and freedom um, are are the ones who who are there. In fact, some people who who are not religious at all have done more to help with this than than a lot of church people. So let that be a, a, a convicting uh, statement to the church too. Well, Faith McDonald with Cartartismo's Global, uh, thank you for spending time with the Global Liberty Alliance uh, podcast and team today. We appreciate uh, the work you're doing. Uh, if we can support you, please let us know. And as always, you're welcome uh, to come and share your thoughts and use the platform uh, if we can help you spread the message. Thank you so much, Jason, and thank you for what what Global Liberty Alliance is doing. God bless you. You know, um, one of my biggest heroes is Armando Valadares. I I read Against All Hope and just wept all the way through it. And um, uh, it's just uh, a life-changing experience. Yeah, Armando Valadares, um, he spent a long time in Cuba's gulag prison system and the man found uh, many ways to survive, but the one thing that kept him going, and his book is called Against All Hope, was prayer, faith, that God and Jesus Christ were always with him. Mm. And uh, he's still a champion of the community. He's there for any, anyone who needs the help, and he's a remarkable fellow. And I know that he uh, would be, I'm going to make sure he, he knows that there's still people out there who remember him because oh, it's. Oh, <laughs> please! I would be so delighted if you told him that he that I'm a huge fan and 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 I I love him. I, well, con I con consider it done, and I'll make sure <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure that he 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 listens to the podcast. I'll I'll make oh, him listen thanks. to all of it, and then wait till the very end for the good stuff. So, <laughs> all right, oh, Faith. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jason. God bless you. God bless you. Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also uh, an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are at any time. It's uh, distributed for you. So that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started.